kinds of issues that we face in present culture. And what I'm going to be doing today is kind of pushing it a little bit into a theological area, and that is the area of eschatology. Now, you're going to think, how does this fit with eschatology? Well, when I use the word eschatology, what comes to your mind? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Future events, other things. Is that it? Jesus, good. He's coming, yes. Okay, there are a lot of good things that are, that are about to happen or will happen someday. And we think about eschatology as something that is in the future. Uh, in fact, the word eschatology is made up of two Greek words that simply means the study of last things. But one of the problems that we have with eschatology is that we have a tendency of thinking, oh, well, that's just out there. That's just way down the pike. You know, it might be that it'll come sooner than we think. But that's our problem when we think about eschatology. I hope today that what I'm going to do is, is both guide you through a little bit of information about, yes, what's going to happen in the future, but then I want to propose to you a new way of thinking about eschatology, one that will bring eschatology into your present experience rather than just keeping it way out there for some day down the pike. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We praise you for the teaching that we receive. We thank you, Father, that you are the God of human history. And that, Father, through the way you have acted in history, you are bringing us ultimately to yourself. We praise you, Father, that we are in a process of a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you are in control of that process. Guide us, Father, as we uh, think about these things this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have your Bible with you, I want you to open to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And we're going to take a look at verses 9 through 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Hallelujah! Jesus will come back. All right, now, there are a lot of issues that, that we deal with in the, in the return of Jesus, but right here in Acts chapter 1, we're given that essential promise. Okay, well, I uh, work with the Evangelical Free Church, the, the um, uh, Pacific Northwest District, in credentialing pastors, and so I have to work with them on our statement of faith. And so I'm going to take you through uh, Article 9 of our statement of faith, and I hope I get this thing right here. Uh, if I go this way, yeah. All right. It's not getting the whole slide there. but Oh, yeah, you got it up there. I don't have the whole thing up there. All right, so this is the first sentence of Article 9 of our Statement of Faith. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, wait a minute, I thought that was premillennial return. Yeah, that just got changed in June of this year. 
So uh, that, that was a big change that we made to our statement of faith. Uh, let me see. Nope, the other way. So our statement of faith, when it was written in June of 2008, said, We believe in the personal, bodily, and premillennial return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have chosen to take the word premillennial out of our statement of faith. Now that make, might make many of you uncomfortable. How does it make me feel? Well, you know what? I'm a premillennialist. I stand firmly on the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return to establish an earthly kingdom that will last for a thousand years. That's premillennialism. Now, why do I hold that view? Because I take Revelation chapter 20 very literally. And that's how I read what I see in Revelation chapter 20. But not all Christians read it that way. And so we have chosen to take the word premillennial out of this statement for the very reason that not all Christians agree on the premillennial kingdom. Now, why would we do something like that? I mean, this is a really important uh, aspect of our theology. Well, yes, it is, but it is a distinctive of our theology. If you're really to uh, understand the Evangelical Free Church, we have always said that we major on the majors and we minor on the minors. Well, what are the majors in theology? What are the major issues? Jesus is God. What else? Virgin birth, the resurrection. What else? Grace, we're saved on the basis of Christ alone through grace alone, okay? Somebody else. Yeah, these are really important major issues. And if you're to ask me what, the, what are the major issues of our statement of faith, they are the issues that deal with our salvation. We are saved on, on the basis of certain issues. Well, I hate to tell you, but I'm not going to be saved because I'm a premillennialist. Now, I am one, and I teach it, and I'm very strong on it, but it's not what's going to get me saved. And so we have chosen to take the word out and to replace it with the word glorious, because certainly, whenever Jesus returns, his return will be glorious. Now, uh, what does this do for us as a denomination? Well, the interesting thing is that taking this word out of our statement of faith opens up the door for, for groups and individuals to become a part of us who aren't premillennial but agree with us on everything else. Uh, now, let me just tell you, uh, two weeks ago I got a phone call from a Korean pastor in the Seattle area. And he said, I want to join the free church. I want our church to become a part of the, the free church. I asked him, well, why uh, do you want your church to become a part of our church? We love your statement of faith. And we love the fact that you took the word premillennial out because we're amillennial and we can join you now. Okay, so that's one of the reasons why this is taking place. Uh, we're finding that there are groups out there that... Uh, may hold another view uh, that are more conservative in their understanding of salvation and cultural issues and everything else, and they fit with us. 
but they couldn't be a part of us because of that word premillennial. And so it had become a tension for us uh, in the free church, and that's a major reason why we made this change. Now, let me take you through some of the biblical options uh, for dealing with um, uh, uh, the Lord's return. Of course, one of the options is what we call amillennialism. And, and this is, uh, if I were to say, <clears throat> what is the, the option that most Christians through time have held, this is the one. I would say that at least 90% of all Christians who've ever lived have been amillennial in their understanding of the return of Jesus. Okay, we're a very small percentage of the church that has held a different view. Now, it doesn't mean that all millennialism was the earliest view. It just means that it is the most prominent. And so Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, I came out of the Lutheran church. My, that's, this is my tradition in the Lutheran church. Uh, and other denominations. But the idea here is that Christ will return, and based on 1 Corinthians 15, where it simply says that at the resurrection, Jesus will return, and then he places all enemies, or the Father places all enemies under his feet. And so the concept is that at the resurrection, then we go immediately to the consummation of all things. So uh, we're in the church age now. There's no future millennial kingdom, no uh, um, earthly uh, thousand-year reign, but we just go from the church age directly into the eternal state after the general resurrection and the judgment and the creation of the new heavens and new earth. So it just simply means that there is no 1,000-year reign of Jesus on earth uh, uh, in the future. Uh, now, they understand that in different ways, but that's uh, uh, the basic idea. Now, another view is called postmillennialism. Anybody know what postmillennialism is all about? It's held mainly by Presbyterians. Okay, it's a concept that the church age is the age in which the Holy Spirit and Jesus is working through the church, and the church will become so dominant in the world that it becomes the millennial age. Okay, and then Jesus will return after the church has ruled uh, for for uh, this uh, millennial age. It doesn't have to be a thousand years. But there are uh, theologians like Jonathan Edwards from the 1700s. Jonathan Edwards believed that things were just hopping. I mean, back there in the 1730s and 40s, the, uh, the Holy Spirit was just changing things right and left here in America and in, in England. And people were coming to the Lord like crazy. Jonathan Edwards would get up and he would preach, you're going to hell if you don't find Jesus. And people would come to Jesus all over the place. If you did that today, nobody would come to Jesus. But, but that's, uh, uh, that was uh, what was going on then. And they believed that ultimately the church was going to take control of all things and, and the, the kingdom would be here on earth. Uh, uh, he believed that that would take place by the year 2000. No. <laughs> so postmillennialism was really very popular in the 1800s because things were, uh, missionaries were being sent all over the world, churches were being established all over the world, good things were happening. And then World War I, World War II, and things started going backwards. So uh, uh, postmillennialism is kind of uh, taken a backseat. Now I am a premillennialist, and here's premillennialism, based on Revelation 20, 
and passages in the Old Testament too. It's not just Revelation 20. Uh, uh, so we're in the church age. There will be a period of tribulation, uh, according to the book of Revelation. Uh, Christ will return uh, before the millennial kingdom. Uh, there will be a rapture of the church at some time during the tribulation, either before, middle, or after. And uh, there will be a millennial kingdom where Christ will rule for a thousand years here on the earth. And then we'll have the resurrection of unbelievers, the judgment and the establishment of the new heavens, the new earth, and we enter into the eternal state. That is premillennialism. Okay, premillennialism opens the door to another issue. And that has to do with the tribulation and the rapture of the church. So this is one reason why people don't like Premillennialism is that it's so complex, but truth often, often becomes complex. So here we have various views of the rapture of the church. And in the free church, we agree to disagree on when the rapture of the church will occur. I am, in the minority these days, a pre-trib premillennialist. I believe that Jesus is coming at the beginning of the tribulation to rapture the church. And then he will return again at the end of the tribulation to establish the millennial kingdom. Okay, so that's a pre-trib uh, premillennialist. Then we have some people who are mid-trib premillennialists, meaning that three and a half years into the tribulation, the church will be raptured. And, uh, but then Jesus will come back to establish the kingdom at the end of the tribulation. Then... The group that is becoming more dominant these days is post-trib premillennialism. So, uh, I'm not sure where you are, Derek. Yes, yes okay. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, right, you're premillennial. Uh, so, <laughs> post-trib premillennialists simply believe that Jesus is coming at the end of the tribulation to rapture the church and then immediately to, to uh, establish his uh, uh, millennial kingdom. Now, the difference between a post-trib premillennialist and an amillennialist is about this much. Okay? What's the difference? The thousand-year kingdom. That's it. Okay, so we can agree on, a, on an awful lot. Okay. So anyway, those are the options. Now, I just wanted to make sure that we kind of got that all played out. Any questions? Okay. Yes, sir. Well, what it is, is uh, yes, it is a hermeneutical difference. And, and by, when we talk about hermeneutics, we're talking about the rules that we use to interpret Scripture. So those of us who are premillennial uh, use a, a set of rules that is a little bit different than people who are amillennial. That doesn't mean that they are bad scholars. It just means that they're using a little bit different rules, okay? And their, their understanding of things is a little bit uh, more uh, metaphorical. Uh, than, than I would uh, use. All right. Now, why would I believe in the millennial kingdom? Th this is a great question because I've even had really good evangelical free church pastors who are premillennialists, and they come to me and they say, you know, I'm a premillennialist, or I, I'll lean that way, but I, I still can't figure out why. What's the purpose of this premillennial kingdom? 
Well, here are some reasons why, why I believe in the premillennial kingdom. First of all, Satan is bound and kept from deceiving the nations there in Revelation chapter 20. Now, there's a point to this, and I'll get to that point in a minute. Secondly, the saints are vindicated, meaning we're coming back with Jesus uh, at that period of time, and we're going to be shown for being the ones who chose the right way, who, who, who came with Jesus, who, who obeyed the message of the gospel. And so the saints are vindicated. Then second, thirdly, it fulfills Old Testament promises of a physical reign of, of the Messiah on earth. Uh, there are just way too many promises in the Old Testament about uh, the Messiah's physical reign on earth. And that's what Jews are expecting. It's what they were expecting in Jesus' day. We're going to see that in just a minute. And then the fourth one, which is, I think, the most important reason, is that the justice of God in judgment is vindicated. Now, how, uh, what do I mean by that? Well, if we have this millennial kingdom where Jesus is reigning physically on earth for a thousand years, and then what happens at the end? People deny him. He's reigning. He's there. And they deny him. That proves that God's judgment on unbelief is vindicated. So you could say that God's judging people today, well, but they didn't really get a chance because they couldn't really know Jesus. Well, yeah, but those who are actually living in the reign of Jesus for a thousand years will still deny him. It vindicates the justice of God. Okay, th those are uh, some reasons. Now, uh, I want to get on to something more important. How long did I take there? Okay, good. <sighs> when we think about eschatology, we think about all that stuff. Okay, and it's good stuff, Especially for those of us who are theologians, you know, we like to get together and we pull out our Bibles and we say, what about this verse? What about that verse? How does this apply? You know, and, and we have a lot of fun dealing with this and we'll argue with each other and disagree with each other and we have big fights and everything else and it's great. It's a lot of fun. But how does it affect my daily life? For the most part, it doesn't. Okay. And everything in Scripture needs to be focused back on who we are right now and how we're living today. Now, if eschatology doesn't do that, then why are we spending our time? Okay, so I believe that eschatology has more to teach us about who we are in the present than what's going to happen in the future. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at the rest of our statement of faith. Yeah, we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Out there. But the coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Do you hear what that's saying? It's saying that eschatology is the reason that you are motivated to obey Jesus, to serve one another, and to preach the gospel. That's the point of eschatology. Okay, now how does this work? Go back to Acts chapter 1 again with me. 
I love this. I just, uh, scripture just, uh, you know, every once in a while I just go, thank you, Lord. That is just so cool. So, you know, here we are, Acts chapter 1, and, and uh, uh, Luke is, is writing to his friend Theophilus, and he's continuing on from, from the gospel here, and he's picking up with what happens uh, at uh, Jesus' uh, uh, ascension. But if, if you look at, uh, chap, uh, at verse 4, it says, on one occasion... While he was eating with them, now, obviously this is Jesus in his glorified state, his coming every once in a while to meet with the disciples, and here he is eating with them, and he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen in a few days. Now, this is what's so cool about this passage. Look at what the disciples do. So then, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Have we come to the eschatological end? Are you going to now sit on the throne in Jerusalem and be the Davidic king? Are you going to kick the Romans out of town? Lord, is that really what's going to happen? And then do we get to be a part of that? Can I be your general? Can I be your finance minister? You know, this is what they're thinking. This is what they want. Verse 7. He said to them, Guys, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Wow. I love how Jesus, uh, you know, uh, subverts what the disciples want. They're asking for what's going to be. Way down the line. And Jesus says, not yet. But you have a job to do. And that job is eschatological. How? Well, let's take a look at this. In the New Testament, we get teaching about the kingdom. And and yeah, there's teaching about the future kingdom. Okay, you know, I'm premillennial. I believe Jesus is coming again in the future to establish his kingdom here on earth. But there's something we often fail to recognize about the teaching of the New Testament. The kingdom has already begun. We are already in the kingdom. It's not here fully yet, but we are already there. Now, how do I say this? Well, I'm only giving you a few examples here, but here's Jesus. Mark chapter 1, you need to turn there with me. Mark chapter 1. I love the fact that these are the very first words that Mark puts on the lips of Jesus in his gospel. So uh, we, we have, you know, Mark starts out right away. This is uh, the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and then he, he goes into John the Baptist. And then we have Jesus baptized by John the Baptist. And then he's sent out into the wilderness for 40 days. And then we get to verse 14. 
After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, proclaiming the gospel. And so here's Jesus proclaiming the gospel. What's on his lips? He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is, and the word translated here is near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, he's using a Greek word which means it is physically near, not temporally near, but physically near. Why? Because I am the king and I am standing in your presence. That's the gospel. So Jesus is telling his disciples, the kingdom has already begun because the king is here. All right, so Jesus' understanding of his ministry is that it is kingdom ministry. It has already begun. Now, if I'm to look into the New Testament and really look at these things, I begin to realize that the ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus all pile up on one another in, in the writers of the New Testament to become the beginning of, of the kingdom of God. So all of that has already inaugurated the kingdom that will ultimately come in its fullness. It has begun in part, but it's not here fully yet. Are you getting this? Okay, so you are already in the kingdom, but you're not there yet. You know what? When I was a, when I was a, a, a young Christian in my 20s, I was going to a certain church. I won't name it. But there was this concept in that church that I had become a Christian, and so now everything in my life was hunky-dory. Everything in my life was, was all set. It was all good. And, and I, here I am, a young man in my early 20s, and I'm going, you know what? I know me. And not everything in my life is hunky-dory. And I know I've come to Jesus, but I know I've got a long way to go yet. And so I began to think, is there something wrong with me? Is there something about me that isn't truly Christian? Until finally, I came to the recognition that we are living in this tension of the already and the not yet. I am already fully in Christ, but I am not yet conformed to his image. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so there's a tension in my life. It's an eschatological tension. That tension that you feel is eschatology. Why? Because the gospel is a gospel in human history. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we're in the middle right now. Now just because we're in the middle doesn't mean we're not part of the last days already. The kingdom has begun. We are already part of the last days. Uh, I was thinking about this this morning, and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, the Mormons have it kind of right. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. That's who we really are. Now, now why, why did they get that name and we didn't? I don't know. 
But, you know, there's something true about that. Now, uh, of course, I'm not advocating becoming Mormons at, at all, but, but there's something true about that name. We are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We just don't recognize it. Now, let's go to another passage here. Many of Jesus' parables refer to the kingdom as something already present. Uh, so uh, Jesus can uh, speak in, in ways like this. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up. The seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel of the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. He's talking about what's going on right now. He's talking about the fact that as we preach the message of the gospel, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is changing people's lives. He's helping them to grow, and eventually there is a harvest. That's happening right now. You're a part of that harvest. And so he says that's what the kingdom is like. It's something that's occurring right now. And then there's another parable about a mustard seed, and it says about the same kind of thing. But Jesus then uses the concept of the kingdom of God to talk about what's going on right now as people are being called out of the kingdom of darkness into and placed into the kingdom of light. Now, John does a little bit different uh, thing here. He doesn't use the word kingdom very often. In fact, the word kingdom only shows up when Jesus is on trial before Pilate. But John thinks of this in a totally different way. He talks about eternal life. And so he says, when you come to Jesus and you believe that the Father is the one who sent Jesus, then you already have entered into eternal life. Turn with me to John chapter 5. I think this is one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament because it helps define who we are. John chapter 5, verse 24. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Wow. I mean, wow again. I've already crossed over from death to life. I am already in the kingdom. Now, it hasn't come yet in its fullness. And I'm not totally conformed to the image of Jesus yet. And one day I'm going to die, and then I'm going to get a glorified body, and I'm going to be like Jesus. And I'll come back with him, and I'll reign with him in the millennial kingdom. Hallelujah, wonderful stuff. But it's already started. This is eschatological. You are already in the last days. And the most important thing that you do is live that eternal life that you already have. You hear what John is saying? You've got it. Now live it. Paul tells us that we are already in the kingdom. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. And again, these are only examples. Uh, I didn't want to overwhelm you with too much, but this is good stuff. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, context, uh, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. 
So you've come to Christ and you already share in the inheritance with all of the saints in the kingdom of light. All right, then he says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, now this is important. And I'm going to do it up here so you can all see me. I'm running around the world and I, you know, doing my own thing, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit goes, Jesus. And I go, What? And then I begin to get drawn. To Jesus. And I find out I need Jesus. And so ultimately I go, Jesus, I'm in trouble and I need you. Right? And what happens to me? At that moment, I, right now, I have two feet firmly planted in the domain of darkness. And at that moment, when I came to Jesus, Jesus takes one of my feet and he pulls it out of the kingdom of darkness and he puts it into the kingdom of light. And so now here I am straddling two different kingdoms. I still have one foot that's still in this kingdom of darkness, this old evil age. There's still sin and darkness here. But I've got one foot in the kingdom. And I'm being drawn to the image of Jesus. And I'm being conformed to his image. That's the goal. And so as I go through life, it's a process of leaning, leaning into Jesus, coming out of this kingdom of darkness, right? And then finally one day, the Father comes to me and says, I require your life from you. And I go, hallelujah, thank you, Lord. And he takes me home. And this other foot gets pulled out of the kingdom of darkness, and I'm fully in the kingdom of light. Brothers and sisters, that's why you have tension in this life. You're not fully in the kingdom yet, but you are there. And so that's what creates all of this confusion and tension that we have. You know, God knows this. And so when you're at the darkest place in your walk with Jesus, realize God understands the tension you're going through. And one day it will be gone. But you're going to have that tension until that day. When I understood that, I suddenly realized that I truly am a Christian. I'm not perfect yet. I haven't been completely conformed to the image of Jesus. But I am there. And no one can take me out. In fact, that's also in John chapter 5. Uh, uh, Jesus makes that promise. So... Uh, this is what it means to be a Christian. Now, the issue that I'm trying to make is that this is eschatological. This is what eschatology is all about. Now, how is it eschatological? Because it's a process with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I'm in the middle. But you see, I've got one foot in the end already. And so I'm already in the last days. No matter what happens historically, I'm already there. So do I spend all my time worrying about whether or not Jesus is going to come to rapture the church at the beginning of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation? Well, it's one thing I can spend a little bit of time having fun with. But 
What I really need to spend my time with is realizing that the goal of my entire life is to be conformed to the image of Jesus so that I can be him in this present evil age to those who are living in darkness. All right, so that's, that's Paul. He says, you were there, now you're here. And that's a very important concept. Now, the gospel is eschatological. It's eschatology. The gospel message is that God loved you before creation. There's a beginning before creation. God loved you. And he prepared to save you even though you hadn't fallen yet. You're not even born yet. And then you come into the historical picture at some point. For me, it was in 1950. So uh, I came into the historical picture in 1950. How many years after Jesus' death and resurrection, but still his death and resurrection made a total difference for my life. And as I came to Jesus when I was in my early 20s, then my life changed because I was pulled into the kingdom of light. And now I'm being conformed to the image of my Lord. That's what the gospel message is. And so the gospel message is a message about time, beginning, middle, end. And we have already entered into the last phase to the last days. Now, the tribulation isn't here yet, I hope, but we have already entered into the last days. And so we are to live as people who have the expectation of Jesus' return. This is good news. Well, it's good news about the reign of God here in this world. So, the gospel message is important for, for a number of different reasons, but it means this. It defines who we are and when we are. And we don't often think about that. Be, because we are part of this gospel message, we are, we are plopped into a certain historical moment. And so it defines when we are. God has done that with believers ever since the very beginning. So Peter and Paul and John and Matthew and all of these guys at the very beginning in the first century, they, who were they? They became the disciples of Jesus Christ. When were they? At the beginning of the last days. In the first century. Well, who are we? We're still the disciples of Jesus Christ. When are we? Well, we're here in the 21st century now, but we're still in the last days, just like the disciples were in the first century. We are living out the last days as we are con being conformed to the image of Jesus. So we need to know who we are. We're, we're, we're the disciples of Jesus, and when we are, we are in the last days. That gives me expectancy. Jesus could return at any moment. It also gives me motivation. I have friends and relatives and loved ones who don't know the Lord. They need to hear the message of the gospel. 
Why? Because Jesus could come back tomorrow. We are in the last days. So the, the gospel message is a message that is eschatological. Now, let me help you with another one, and that is the Great Commission. So turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Uh, when we were working at, uh, in Corvallis at Servants Fellowship, I made my people recite this at the end of every single service because they need to remember we have a commission. We have a job to do. This is our commission. But notice what it says, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, you know, we tend to just read through that because we, we want to get to the rest of what he says. Because then he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, blah, blah, blah. That's the commission, right? So, so sometimes, even we quote this, we don't even quote the beginning of verse 18. We just go right to verse 19, therefore go. But there's a reason for verse 18. Therefore, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, what authority? Well, Jesus has been given the authority of the Son of Man. He called himself the Son of Man. Now, who's the Son of Man? If you were in my church, you would know exactly what to say right now. Because they all know that you have to go to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Go there with me. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Here, Daniel has got a vision, and he's seeing the Father. It says, verse 9, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So there's the Father in heaven. And then verse, a little later on, verse 11, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn was speaking, etc., etc. Verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Jesus uses this designation in the Gospels. Because he's, he, he doesn't really want to say to the Jews at his day, I am the Messiah. Because if he says, I am the Messiah, then they're going to say, good, let's go to Jerusalem and kick the Romans out of town. It would become political. And he doesn't want that to occur because he's got other work to do. But he uses the designation son of man because of what this says about what's going to happen in the future. The Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the Son of Man. And that's the authority that Jesus claims in Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The authority of the Son of Man. Okay, so if I've got all that authority and you are my disciples, then this is what I want you to do. I think this is important. So he says, therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. All right, so 
Within the context of the Great Commission, we have eschatological language. The authority that Jesus is claiming is the authority of the Son of Man, who will one day return and rule. That's the authority he's talking about. It's eschatological authority. So within the eschatological period of time that we're living in, Jesus says, you have a job. And what's that job? Make disciples. That's your job. But what are you supposed to do with those disciples? You're supposed to teach them to obey everything I have taught you. Okay, you just had two weeks with Dr. Lance. And he's talking about all these different things out there that are part of our culture that, that you know, we look at and we just shake our heads and we go, what do we do with these things? Well, you know what? I can't do very much about any of those things. I can make personal decisions, and I can help others who come to me with questions who are trying to make personal decisions. But I can't do much to change our culture at all. Right? If I could, I would. What does Jesus want me to do? Make disciples. That's our job in this eschatological age. So what am I not saying? This is the hard part. I am not saying that it is our job to get involved in politics. Sorry, folks, but politics is a ruse. It's the way of the world, not the way of Jesus. When I follow politics as the answer for the future, I'm getting involved with the world in the domain of darkness. I am not involved with the light in the domain of Jesus. Do you hear what I'm saying? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be political beings. We live in America. We need to be a part of this process. But we are not going to change our culture through politics. It just isn't going to happen. No, we change our culture by making disciples and helping them to obey what Jesus taught us. It's the only way it happens. And so if we're not doing that, then we're, we're abrogating our responsibility. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, I, I appreciate everything that Dr. Lance had to tell you in the last couple of weeks because that's the culture we live in. And we need to know how to help people as they're making decisions in that culture. But the best way we help them is to bring them to Jesus Christ. That's why we here in the Free Church concentrate on the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to spend a lot of time telling you who to vote for and why. That's your responsibility. It's Derek's responsibility to preach the gospel. Okay, now, we have this commission. And I've told you already that, that, that we do this by preaching the message of the gospel, not through politics. Now, I want you to go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Because here, I think, Paul is giving us a vision of the kingdom. Galatians chapter 3. And we're almost done. So, Galatians chapter 3. You know, uh, Paul wrote Galatians as one of his earliest letters, uh, probably the third one that he wrote. And uh, he, well, maybe the first. 
and he's so upset. He's so angry. And the reason that he's angry is because there are these believers who are telling other believers that they have to become Jews before they can become Christians. They have to be circumcised before they can come to Christ. And Paul gets so angry that you have to read the book of Galatians like this. Paul, an apostle sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. See, this is his eschatological theology. It's right there. Rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, who, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Right? That's how you have to read Galatians, okay? We don't get namby-pamby in the book of Galatians. I mean, later on in the book of Galatians, he's going to tell these Judaizers to go, I'm sorry, I'm going to use the word, castrate themselves. He's really mad. Okay, well, in this process of the book of Galatians, he says something that is absolutely transforming. Verse 26. You are all sons of God. So you've been brought into the kingdom. You're sons of God. You have eternal life already. You're sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now why does Paul say this? I think it's an image of the kingdom yet to come. There is no place in the kingdom of God for racism. None whatsoever. There is also no place in the kingdom of God for the wealthy to take advantage of the poor or vice versa. And there is no place in the kingdom of God for sexual inequality. You hear me? Now, we're not totally there yet, but that is the goal. And so how are we supposed to live in this present evil age? With these things in mind. I love my neighbors. Why? Well, they need Jesus, yes. But I love my neighbors because my neighbors are Chinese and Cambodian and Mexican and African-American. They're from all over the world. Russian. It's an incredibly great mix. Once every year, we have a big block party, right? We have the neighborhood block party. And it's a great time because it's such an incredible mix. Now, I found something really odd this year. My Hispanic neighbors were not all that willing to talk to me this year. Why? I love them. I used to live in Mexico. I can speak their language. But they're afraid. And why is that? I'll let you answer that question. There's no place in the kingdom of God for racism. And now I want to tell you something, again, transformational. The church is the eschatological body in the kingdom of God. 
We are the institution of the kingdom of God. There's no place for racism in the church. No place for the wealthy to take advantage of the poor. We should be sitting side by side, as James says. No place for sexual inequality in the church. That's my view. But the church is the eschatological body of Jesus Christ in the world. Okay, just a couple of last things and then we're done. Eschatology helps us to anticipate the return of Christ and gives us motivation for service. Now, I give you here uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 10, and the reason for this isn't always clear right up front. The verse simply says this, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Okay, fine, that's great. But the context of this verse is Matthew 13, which is the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is talking about all the things that are going to occur sometime in the eschatological future. Okay, And he comes to this place where he's describing some of the things that, that may happen to us. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. Actually, it happened to the first century believers. Uh, on account of me, you will stand before governors and kings and, as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. What is he saying? You may go through all sorts of suffering because you are a part of the body of Christ in the eschatological last days. You may go through all kinds of suffering, but don't get distracted. The gospel must be preached. Anything else is a distraction. That's our warning for today. The gospel must be preached. Then, of course, we get 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you want to turn there. I love 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, it was the major part of my uh, master's thesis when I was at TED's. Uh, but the reason why I chose it is because I wanted to, to, to know more about uh, the resurrection and how the resurrection of the human body is also associated with the redemption of the rest of creation. Uh, great stuff! You know, my, uh, as Christians, we're not looking for a spiritual resurrection so that we can be some kind of ethereal beings drifting in space somewhere. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for physical bodies that are perfectly attuned to dwell in the spiritual realm, meaning our resurrection bodies will be perfectly attuned to come into the very presence of God the Father. That's what we're looking for. And because that is our promise, Paul tells us at the end of this chapter, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is eschatological language, folks. You are the disciples of Jesus Christ in the eschatological last days. And as you are, uh, uh, think about the resurrection to come, the return of Christ, all of these things, that is there to motivate you for service to the Lord, however the Holy Spirit is calling you to serve.
That's what eschatology is all about. Did you learn anything this morning? Okay, now this week, while you're living your life and you have a choice to make, um, let's see, am I going to do A or B here? Well, you know what? The Bible tells me I really shouldn't do A. And, and you know, the Holy Spirit's kind of telling me, you know, that's not the right direction to go. Okay, so what am I going to choose? I think I'll choose B. You know what you've just done? You've made an eschatological choice. You've allowed the Holy Spirit to conform you to the image of Jesus. And, you know, we should all come together on Sundays and we should all go, the victories I had this week. But we don't do that. Why? Because we don't really give God the credit for the choices we make. They're all eschatological choices. That's what it means to be a believer in this present evil age. <sighs> Got a few minutes for questions. Distract from really this ending, which is powerful, so we may want to come back to that. But to help these folks, uh, you, you said that uh, we changed our doctrinal statement uh, doctrine number nine, and when you said we, I thought it would be helpful. Um, you know, we may envision a closed-off room yeah, of twelve right, people. Right. Uh, but so, um, uh, who's the, the we? Folks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And the process maybe uh, <laughs> right. in addition. So, in two thousand eight, we wrote a new statement of faith, and of course, uh, a statement of faith. Any any change to the statement of faith has to be uh, uh, agreed on by the the whole. Uh, body of evangelical free churches at our national conference. And so in 2008, we agreed to a new statement of faith. This last June, we agreed to change that one word in the statement of faith at the national conference uh, in Naperville, Illinois. And uh, let me see, the, the vote was about 80% of the people who were there. And this was the the biggest group at the conference since 2008. Uh, it was very well attended, and we had really good and lively discussion on all of this, and uh, I was really proud uh, of the Evangelical Free Church for how we handle a major change like this. So just to let you know that there was a process. Part of that process was that uh, all of we pastors uh, have had meetings with uh, people from the denominational uh, office, uh, and we've talked about these things uh, in pastoral uh, meetings and stuff, and uh, pretty much here in the Pacific Northwest, we didn't have any, uh, any disagreement over uh, making this change. Uh, there has been some disagreement, but uh, 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 when people began to realize that this doesn't mean that we're no longer premillennial, it just means that uh, we can allow others to join with us, uh, I think that helped a lot. So anyway, yes? It depends on how you understand the tribulation, okay? If you're pre-trib, pre-millennial, then you believe that the church, all of us, are raptured out of the world at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. So the people who are left here are predominantly Jews, okay? And others who, people will come to Christ during that period of time, but they will also suffer for doing so, okay? So that's... 
uh, those are the people who would be alive at the end of the tribulation. If you believe that, uh, that Jesus is coming at the end of the tribulation to take his church out of the world and then return again, then you believe that the church, all of us, are going to go through the seven years of the tribulation. So, you know, then be prepared. Okay? And uh, so a part of that uh, idea is... Um, while we would go through the tribulation, the promise is that God would take care of us in, in the same way that he took care of the people of Israel during the 10 plagues of Egypt. So while the plagues were taking place, the people were covered. Uh, and that's probably, you know, that's one argument about how that would work. Did I answer your question? <laughs>